Hello everyone and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. My name is David Chen and I've never read any of the books in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. My name is Joanna Robinson and I've read every book in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And welcome back to A Cast of Kings. If you're just tuning into this show for the first time, um, you should know that you can find all of our episodes at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. You can also email us and let us know what you thought of this week's episode of the podcast and of the show at acastofkings at gmail.com. Uh, we also spoil everything through this week's episode of Game of Thrones, but we don't do anything, uh, we don't spoil anything from future week's episodes, and that includes anything found in the next time on Game of Thrones preview that HBO frequently airs. So uh, for this week's episode of the podcast, we will be talking about everything through uh, Season 3, Episode 2, Dark Wings, Dark Words. That's Dark Wings, Dark Words. We'll be spoiling everything through... This week's episode. Okay, but before we get to this week's episode, Joanna Robinson, uh, sometimes in the fog of war, uh, judgment can be clouded and a grasp of basic fundamental facts about the Game of Thrones universe can be lost. Uh, And, you know, this is an inevitability and we regret it when it happens, but mistakes are occasionally made on this podcast. Mostly by Dave, never by me. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> uh, there's a couple of things that people wanted to correct us on last week. I'm sure more than a couple, but the two big ones were that, uh, first of all, the scene in la- uh, last week's episode of, of Game of Thrones when Davos uh, has to guess you know, which one of his rescuers, uh, which king his rescuers are, are uh, sort of serving – uh, that did, in fact, appear in the books. Joanna, I don't know how you could I should I should a... make mention of the fact that I, I went back and checked, and it's like one – honestly, it's one paragraph. Well, it's not like it's – I missed it. I apologize. <laughs> but some people emailed, and they're like, it was the most pivotal moment of the entire book. And I was like, it's not. It's a paragraph. I'm sorry I missed it. We expect your knowledge to be encyclopedic and inerrant. So I don't know uh, – you know. There's no excuse, is what I'm saying. So. Oh, absolutely no excuse. Yeah, Fierce smackings and whackings. That's right. right. Uh, and the second thing is that somehow, so one of two things is true. Either both Joanna and myself misremembered the opening sequence of Game of Thrones for the season premiere, or we both got an earlier version of the episode, or we both saw an earlier version that didn't show Winterfell smoking. Uh, no, I went back and watched my version, and it was definitely there. So It was I smoking no or... It was smoking, yeah. Okay, so we were both wrong about that. I don't know yep. how we missed out on such a crucial modification well, like, to the opening credits, but... Especially since we were both looking for yeah, it. Yeah, we were both looking <laughs> for it, and I guess sometimes... We still missed it. You know, so. you know, that's... Well, that's why we have our... You know, actually, Joanna, I'm going to spin this as a test for our listeners, just to ah. see if they're paying attention. And you know, guys, I have a feeling we're going to... Sp- you're going to sprinkle in a few more test questions throughout the course of this episode. You know, that, <laughs> that if, we, we, if we make any mistakes, it's just really a way of seeing if you guys are still listening. <laughs> so, yeah, there we go. Anyway, apologies uh, for the errors. We always try to avoid them, and uh, we really appreciate it when you guys correct us. We don't want to be propagating false information out there. So, I will say not since like the Hodor penis gate of last season have I received so many messages and tweets about and screen caps of things and they're like there's smoke don't you see it i see it now man i see it now there you go there can't you go. unsee it so there you go 
All right. Uh, well, let's move on into this week's episode. Uh, so just to give you guys a sense of what we're going to be doing today, we're going to be talking about this week's episode. Uh, and then we're going to be thanking some of the sponsors for this week's episode of the podcast. Uh, and then delving into your emails. Uh, we got a ton of emails, a ton of comments at SlashFilm.com. Uh, so looking forward to talking about some of those. So let's get into the show, Joanna. Uh, uh, let, let's go storyline by storyline and then talk about general impressions of this episode. Uh, so this episode begins with uh, Bran, and he's running, so we know that it's a dream. Unless and, people are like, oh, my God, he's cured. No. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't think they thought that. And then his, he sees his brothers appear out of nowhere, even more sign that it's a dream, uh, and sees uh, the three-eyed crow, this motif that has come back to the show again and again. Um, so he sees this boy in his dream. What's the name of the boy we find out later on in the episode? Jojen Reed. Jojen Reed. He sees Jojen Reed, uh, who makes some really sort of creepy... He's a kind of a creepy presence. Uh, I believe he talks during this opening scene, right? Yes, yeah. Um, and he says, you can't, you can't shoot the crow, you're the crow. That's what he says, yeah. essentially. So then later on in the episode, right, we, uh, we have Bran still on the run, uh, still kind of having escaped Winterfell barely uh, with Asha, and they kind of... Uh, Jojen Reed and his sister get the drop on them, right? Yes. So, so uh, before we progress any further, I guess, what is going on here, Joanna? <laughs> I just, like, who is this guy? You know, is there, there's probably nothing you can tell me at this point, but... No, there are things, no, there's definitely things I can tell you. Um, what I can tell you is that Jojen and Mira actually show up in book two. They were supposed to be there for most of last season. And so they were these two characters that a bunch of book lovers were like, where are Jojen and Mira Reed? They were supposed to be with Bran and Rickon, like, you know, in Winterfell when it was still intact. Oh, interesting. And, um, you know, the writers and their infinite wisdom decided to push them back until this season, which is, it, it worked out fine. But Jojen has these, Jojen Reed has these prophetic dreams. They're called green dreams. And they gave that, like the integral one, they gave to Bran instead last season. And it worked fine. Uh, Bran has these wolf dreams where he's a wolf all the time. And um, so they sort of given Bran some more of Jojen's characteristics to sort of blend it all together. But basically these two kids are they're of House Reed and they are House Reed is, you know, one of the they're banner men to the Starks. They're loyal to the Starks. And so um as they reveal later in the episode, Jojen's father knew Ned Stark and basically Jojen had these dreams about Bran and so he came to find him. Is is the premise of the t- of the TV show is that Jojen came they came to find them because he had dreams about Bran because Bran is important. So Yeah. Uh, does that make sense? It does. That actually does help a lot. Uh, I will say that uh, based on what you're saying, it, it does seem to make sense to push the introduction of these characters out because they had a lot to deal with last season, right? The brand characters and the Theon, like all that stuff was tied in together. And if you had introduced these other characters, uh, it might have made things a little bit more complex. Yeah, uh, and absolutely. And they had so many characters to introduce last season. Right. Um, that, but if you think about, I mean, we'll talk, we can talk about this later, but there are like six new characters we meet in this episode alone. Right. right. So, um, yeah, they pushed it this season, but you still like, no matter where you push the introduction in Game of Thrones, you're always going to be contending with a bunch of new characters. Definitely. But yeah, it, it didn't hurt the story at all to have Jojen and Amira show up here. So here they are. Amira is a cool little funky spiky girl with her, her spear. She's, she's a little Aria like, so we like her. Right. 
Um, and I guess I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but in terms of general impressions of this episode, this was definitely one of those kind of transition episodes. And what, place I mean, setting. What, what I mean, yeah, what I mean by that is, yeah, table setting, place setting, whatever you want to call it. Not that much happens in this episode, and uh, I'm not saying that necessarily as a complaint because without the uh, sort of table setting, you wouldn't have really awesome payoffs later in the season. Uh, if they're just not really, but these these types of episodes are just not as enjoyable to me as you know probably what we're going to get later on this this season. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, Joanna. Well, you know, I so I watched this episode and then I sort of saw everyone's feedback, which seemed to be to agree with you in terms of they weren't, they didn't find this episode very exciting. And then I rewatched the episode actually a couple times and I don't know, I really liked this episode and I think uh, maybe it's one of those things that when you revisit it after you see the payoff, it'll mean that much more to you. But the, the table setting that's happening in this episode is so well done so finely drawn and the new characters we got were so well done that it just really excited me. And maybe that's the book lover thing. Maybe it's like, I'm really excited about these new characters and I think they nailed it. So I'm really excited. You know, well, I will say that a lot of the scenes uh, are really badass. Like there's the, the introduction of the brotherhood, for example, I thought was very impressive. Right. Uh, and, but there is also stuff in this episode that is, I thought really poorly done as well. So let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about, <laughs> let's, let's move on. Let's move on. So, uh, so, the introduction of Judge and Reed. Then we have um, a continuation of the Rob, Talisa, uh, and Roose Bolton storyline with Kat. They, uh, they receive word from Riverrun and Winterfell. Winterfell, we know, has, already, has been burned to the ground by uh, the uh, Theon and his men, or mostly Theon's men, right? Not Theon, because he was probably unconscious at the time. Uh, and remind us about Riverrun, Joanna. What was the state of Riverrun last time we saw it? I don't have this show. Has the show been to River Run? I don't know. That's kind of why I'm asking you. I don't think the show's ever taken us to River Run. Uh, River Run is where Callan Stark grew up. And uh, so that's where the house Tully is located. I believe we've never seen River Run. Um, and that's different the than, than the place with uh, where Tyrion was imprisoned and Kat's sister was, right? Right, exactly. That's the Airy. Right, that's right. Yeah. So River Run uh, is where the House Tully, um, that's their home, and we haven't seen it yet. But yeah, so they get double bad news, and the bad news is that Catelyn's father, uh, Lord Halster Tully, is dead, and then also that maybe Bran and Rickon are dead. They don't know. And the difference, you know, I talked about this last season. Actually, this difference actually kind of bothers me because – it's important, I think, that Catelyn and Rob get the news that Bran and Rickon are dead before – she gets it right before she lets Jamie go and he gets it right before he marries um, the woman that he marries. And so it's out of grief and despair and you know uncontrolled emotions that they make these two really bad decisions basically. And Now, in, um, in the books also, is the River Run thing – like is there a scene there? Like is that explained or is it just explained kind of – is it kind of like a three sentence explanation and you don't really know what's going on? No, I mean, in the book, actually, Catelyn is at River Run I see. and her father's dying for a really, for a while and then he dies. So they moved them to Heron Hall instead. That's why I was like, that's why I'm really confused about what they're doing with Heron Hall because Catelyn's supposed to be at River Run. But anyway, 
um, the, you know, just news is that her father's dead. And yeah, there's a lot more explanation of that in the book, but I don't think that we miss it that much. I mean, it might seem confusing and out of the blue, but I, I think the payoff, you'll see it won't really matter. Yeah. Um, well, Patrick S wrote in this week at a cast of Kings at gmail.com and, uh, and he kind of agreed with your confusion last week. He said, uh, the two of you identified a weak area in the season three premiere episode, Heron Hall. It wasn't obvious even to book readers what had transpired here. The clues were pretty subtle. Roose Bolton was suggesting Rob start getting things set up to siege Harrenhal, with Rob doubting that the mountain would even try to defend the old crumbling ruin. At that point, a scout riding up to report that the castle appeared deserted might have been a nice bridge for the scene where Rob's army marches into the interior of Harrenhal to find the dead Northmen and Rivermen prisoners left behind by the mountain's men. The the thing I noticed upon like my fourth rewatch of that episode were carrion carrion birds circling Harrenhal, uh-huh. and I think that's what Rob is like. Well, it doesn't look to me like we're going to get a fight, and I think that's because he saw like you know vultures. Very basically. subtle, Very yeah, subtle. super subtle. So you know, and I wouldn't Harrenhal is such a creepy place that I wouldn't be surprised if there are constantly vultures circling around it anyway. But I don't know if that's that was sort of their shorthand for this is what's happening. But I don't know. Anyway. So then there's this pretty awesome transition from um, when Kat asks, have you heard anything from Theon at all? And Rob says no. And we haven't heard anything from Theon at all either for the last uh, episode. And then we, are, we sort of smash cut to Theon uh, waking up in this horrible medieval-esque dungeon. Uh, we don't know where he is. We don't know who's torturing him. We don't know for what. And it's a pretty... Uh, Pretty uncomfortable scene, uh, and sort of at, at the end of this episode, there's this notion that he might be rescued by someone that his sister sent. Um, but yeah, th- like it's you know this this show has showed kind of medieval torture previously, and it has always been a really uncomfortable experience. And um, they generally don't shy away from some, like really graphic violence, uh, and this episode was no exception. When they really like the camera was super close up on Theon's fingernail as this guy stuck his knife under it. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, like I recoiled. It was really, really uncomfortable to see. But also, kind of, uh, you expect a show like this to be as uh, gritty and unflinching and uncompromising in how it depicts these acts of violence. Uh, what did you think of this whole Theon storyline? You obviously know what happens with Theon. Don't give that away. But uh, when you read that section in the book and you were watching this scene, did you feel like they they skimped on the violence? Did you think they went overboard? Did they get it just right like Goldilocks? Okay. I've been thinking ever since I watched this episode, I've been thinking about how I'm going to talk about this. Honestly. Thinking long and hard about it. (laughs) And I really think it's safe for me to say this. Okay. (laughs) Tread softly, Joanna. I'm treading softly. Theon does not show up in book three, A Storm of Swords. Right. And this is what I've been alluding to this whole time of like sometimes characters don't show up for an entire book. Theon doesn't. You hear about him, but you don't see him at all. I see. So, well, that doesn't um, answer my question. Well, I, does, well, I guess it does. I guess it there does. is well, no passage in the book. I mean, uh, except, Okay, okay, I see. You know? Well, it sounded like you were saying that um, maybe he might have shown up in a subsequent book and that, the, that book's plot lines were merged into this season, but you're saying that's not even the case. Well, I am saying that. I just didn't know if I could say that. But yeah, okay. exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't. That doesn't really give that much away. But right. Uh, so, so suffice to say, right? Like, however you f- like, are, are you saying that what was depicted here 
you didn't even hear about at all in the book, or are you saying it was in the book in some form? Either book in three some or four. form. In uh, some form, yeah. Okay, and if that's the case, did you think that this was a good depiction of that? This is tame compared to what's in the book. Really? Interesting. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> that's, uh, that seems to be the case in, in general with, with the book's violence compared to uh, the show's violence. We actually missed one of the best jokes from last, ep- uh, last episode. What was that? When uh, Cersei says something along the lines of, Oh, uh, Tyrion! Oh, I thought, right! I, I heard they, they said your your nose got cut off, but uh, I guess it's not that bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Because Tyrion's nose did in fact get cut off in the book, right? Right. So that was kind of a, a bonus for book readers there. Yes. Uh, anyway, it, whatever the case, it, the, this sequence was really well done, and I uh, I just think Theon's story, like what impressed me so much about the show, and and kind of continues to impress me, is the way that characters will move in and out of focus depending on what the main thrust of the season is and uh, Theon was very much one of the main characters he was one of the characters driving the action in season two now kind of reduced to a side character who is separate from the action and and whose fate is unclear uh and I think this scene takes you kind of out of uh, the rest of this episode, like it kind of is very jarring, like this the uncertainty around what's going on with Theon. And, and so I get, thought it's really well done. Yeah. And you get that in the books too, in terms of I've talked before about how there are point of view characters in different books. Like Jamie Lannister is a point of view character in this book, but he hadn't been in books previous. So obviously Jamie Lannister is going to move more to the front, you know, the forefront because you get inside his head. So the plot, you know, George R. R. Martin tries very hard, I think, to put one p- point of view character in each of the like locations where we're going. Right. So we get some insight into what's happening. But like, for example, Cersei and Joffrey are not point of view characters in Storm of Swords. So any scene where you have Cersei and Joffrey talking to each other, that's made up, you know, and Marjorie isn't even a point of view. Ca- you know, so there are a lot of scenes where they have to kind of make it up and they do a really good job, but it's because there are no spies in the room at that point you know they just sort of make it up so right right um that's interesting but, that's interesting but and let me point out by the way that um, i i i promised myself i would not give you a hard time about this <laughs> but say, telling me that jamie is a point of view character kind of did give away that he would not be killed at the end of this episode that's not at the end of this episode sure but it doesn't it means nothing for the books okay well fair enough because i guess i think go ahead I think it means nothing for the books. Okay, because because characters can be killed during their point of view chapters, I assume? Yeah, that, I believe okay. so. All right, yeah. well then, never mind. <laughs> then I did, I'm not giving you a hard time for good reason. <laughs> this time. Uh, speaking of, so speaking of Jamie. I mean, uh, yeah, in the, basically, let me think about season one, yeah. In the cold open of every single book, right. that character dies in their point of view chapter. Right. So, yeah, I think, yeah, anyway. People can sure correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, well, speaking of Jamie and Brienne, excuse me, um, so they continue their wonderful banter in this episode. I, you know, I saw I posted this on my Tumblr like a year ago when when uh, season two was happening, but uh, there was a uh, a graphic kind of indicating that the relationship between Jamie and Brienne is very similar to the relationship between Archer and Lana on the TV show Archer. <laughs> If you're familiar mm-hmm. with that, I thought that captured the dynamic really well. Jamie's just kind of uh, very witty, always doing things to try and drive Brienne insane. Occasionally, it works, um, and yeah, it's so. So he he's kind of needling her. He's t- talking to her about Lord Renly, uh, saying that 
she fancied him, and uh, she, that really gets her worked up. And I couldn't tell what it was exactly that was working her up. Was it the fact that he was kind of questioning Renly's honor, or was it the fact that uh, he was accusing her of being attracted to him, which she was, or was it both? Um, do you have any thoughts, any insight you can provide on this, Joanna? Well, yeah, I think, well, and he was pointing out the fact that Renly was gay and she was like, no, he's not, um, which he is. Sorry, honey. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I think she was de- trying to deny that the reason she was loyal to him was that she was in love with him, but you know, she was, and I don't know. It, I like, I liked that interchange much more in the book because he needles her about, you know, cause she's on the run for killing Renly. Right. And, um, last season, and even though she didn't, she's on the run for that. And so he starts calling her Kingslayer, which is his nickname. And uh, he's like, we're both Kingslayers. You're a Kingslayer. I'm a Kingslayer. She's like, I didn't king- kill him like a smoke shadow did. He's like, oh, I should have used that story. A smoke shadow <laughs> killed the king, not me. So I don't know. It, it became less about like teasing, though he does that too. But the teasing is merciless from Jamie to Brienne. And, and I think those actors are doing such a magnificent job with, yeah. with their roles. So Definitely, definitely. Well, uh, the episode concludes with uh, right. the the fight scene that we've been waiting for for you know six however many episodes, uh, where they finally get to battle each other, and Jamie finally gets to find out if he measures up to Brienne's uh, swordsmanship. Uh, pretty decent fight scene, I thought. Pretty well shot, uh, pretty well choreographed, and uh, and Brienne is victorious. Well, yeah, because he's been in a cell for you know however long. His muscles right. sort he's of also wasting away, chains, and he's know? wearing chains. So but, not really a fair fight. Let's be and honest. She's taller than him and stronger than him. But um, when I loved the look on his face when he got the sword in his hand, and he was like, "This is you know this is his passion is sword fighting," and he's like, "Oh, finally, I've got a sword back in my hand. Like this is how it's supposed to be." And then he he's so cocky, and then yeah, he just gets. He doesn't get pummeled like he does. A, he puts up a fairly decent fight, but he gets beaten. So, yeah. Uh, and then there's this kind of holy crap moment when these people ride up on them. Right. Right. And it's uh, it's Bolton's Bannermen. You don't know who they're. Are they Lannister men? Are they Stark men? We, we're, I wasn't sure, at least. Have we seen Noah Taylor before? Uh, in, no. In this season? No. And we do know who they are. Um, Dave, not just book readers, I promise. This is not a spoiler. Ruth Bolton is one of um, Rob's men. No, no, no. I, I know. What I mean is like when they first showed up, I wasn't 100% sure who it was. Oh, and then, and then Jamie goes, oh, House Bolton. Okay. Right. That's right. That's then right. you knew. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, Noah Taylor, who I love. He's a great actor. Yeah, so he's, he's great. Actor. He's great and uh, has this really specific look. I think they added a scar to his face. Yeah. Uh, so very distinctive, very threatening, very menacing. Uh, I really liked his work. And I think he was in... Uh, submarine. He was in 2010's film Submarine. Yes, uh, the Richard Ayoade movie it was pretty, was pretty great in that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the fate of of uh, Jamie and Brienne is is really unclear now, and I, I just don't think I, I don't think it's going to go well for either of them. That's just my my really uh, astute observation, Joanna. That's just I did like the fade out of Brienne, like with her sword right. up, like slowly backing away, like she's going to take these men or whatever. So. Yeah, I mean, so that's that's kind of a question, right? Like, did you ever see that movie, The Rock? Yeah, of course. Where, I've seen it. where it's San Francisco? Of course, I've seen it. Where the uh, Commander Anderson is going up against Ed Harris's men, and he says. You know I can't stand down, and then they all die. What is Brienne's place? Is she allowed to stand down and surrender Jamie, or does she fight to the death? 
I mean, I suspect that she's going to stand down, but I just mean like her whole thing is honor, honor, honor. I didn't know if there are any rules in the Game of Thrones universe that would would force her to to fight this out to the death. Oh, Um, yeah. I think there's rules in terms of she's sworn to Catelyn. She's got one job, which is to keep Jaime alive and to deliver him to King's Landing. And they're there to take Jaime back to the Stark men. Right. So I think she would fight tooth and nail to protect him. And um, I wanted, one thing I want to say about the fight, I did just reread the chapter where they fought in the book. And um, they describe it's, – it's very sexy actually, weirdly. Like they keep talking about the swords kissing. And then when they're, when they're caught, she's like – she's got him on the ground and she's on top of him. And, and Jamie says something about like it looks like we're caught like fucking instead of fighting or whatever. So I don't know. It was just a very like sexually charged scene. Um which I which didn't really come across that much in the no, show. Yeah. Not at all. No. So anyway. All right. So then uh King's Landing, right? Let's talk about some King's Landing action. Uh Let's there's do it. more discussion between Cersei and Joffrey and uh, I'm beginning to really love the interaction between these characters. I mean, th- this is something that's been building since season one. You saw it evolve in season two. And Joffrey seems to have totally lost all respect for his mom. I mean, he never had that much to begin with. Just by the fact that he killed Ned Stark, right, is evident that he wasn't really going to pay attention to her too much. Uh, but I don't know. It, it seemed kind of interesting seeing as how she, as terrible of a human being as she is, she does know what she's doing. And so for Joffrey to continue to totally disregard her, not only disregard her, but demean her in the way that he is, uh, seems to me to be a pretty dangerous game. Uh, and, but done so well by these two two actors, uh, I really feel like they are well matched as actors, despite the fact that there's probably a huge age difference between the two of them. Right. Um, so, uh, what did you think of uh, what did you think of this interaction? Oh, and also, I should mention that it seems to me that Cersei continues to feel threatened by by Marjorie, right? That that she's trying to convey to Joffrey. Uh, don't let this woman get too close. She has her own machinations, and Joffrey's kind of like. Uh, I don't really give a crap what you think. It is a good match, but what do you think of her? She's beautiful and intelligent. Yes, she is. Her concern with the well-being of the common people is interesting. Not to me. I only meant that to go out of your way to endanger yourself. It's becoming one of the most boring conversations I've ever had. Marjorie Terrell dotes on filthy urchins for a reason. She dresses like a harlot for a reason. She married a traitor and known degenerate like Renly Baratheon for a reason. She married Renly Baratheon because she was told to. That's what intelligent women do. What they're told. I'm not 100% sure if he's saying that because he doesn't respect her at all or if he actually kind of favors Marjorie. My suspicion is that it's the latter and doesn't want to listen to any of his mom's objections. It's definitely the latter by the end of the episode. Right. We can talk more about that later. But yeah. um, I think, yeah, I love the way that Cersei's like he's holding a scrap of cloth and she's like, maybe she can use that for her wedding dress. It's certainly enough fabric. Like Cersei is such a mean girl and she's trying to get Joffrey to mean girl with her. She's like, so that was pretty interesting the way she went in among the peasants. Pretty <laughs> stupid, huh? You know, and Joffrey's not biting at all. So, um, I, I mean, what I did find refreshing was the fact that somebody on the actual show acknowledged how scantily clad Marjorie is most of the time, so it kind of yeah, broke well, the fourth. It kind of broke the fourth wall a little bit, Joanna. Well, she did in the first episode too. She was like, "Oh, you aren't cold." 
And Marjorie's <laughs> like, no, I'm, I'm dandy. <laughs> I'm all about my midriff being, you know, anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I Careful, also Joanna. See- we don't want people to think you're complaining about the nudity on Game of Thrones too much. <laughs> There's no nudity this episode, guys. That's r- Oh, my gosh. Shocking, right? It was a bummer. It was just... What will I even talk about? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so... Uh, so should we should we talk about the rest of the Joffrey scenes in, right, right now, or should we should we move on? Let's, I think we should talk about Sansa first. Okay, let's talk about Sansa. So uh, S- Shay and Sansa discuss Littlefinger, and they kind of have have this uh, ominous conversation. Well, let me just say, this is again, in my opinion, a scene like this whole storyline is of uh, telling and not showing, and I say that uh, disparagingly. Like I, I don't feel like there's any sketchiness between Sansa and Littlefinger other than what the characters have actually said explicitly. Because Littlefinger is just a sketchy guy. There's, he's not doing anything beyond what he normally does. Do you know what I mean? Uh, in my opinion. What do you think? Yeah, but Sansa's a dummy. She's a little bit of a dummy. And like she doesn't realize how manipulative Littlefinger is. Like She doesn't realize his... I don't think she realizes his role in betraying her father... And so I don't think she's properly wary, and that's what Shay's trying to instill, the proper degree of wariness in her. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's right. You know, just between... He's talking about... He's trying to convince Sansa to go away with him, and Shay basically does not think that's a smart idea. And Sansa, who is like, no, he's a friend of my mother, and it makes sense. You know, yeah, I understand he's a little whatever, and Shay's like, no, he's a lot whatever, basically. Right. Right. Does that make sense? I, yeah, I it does explained sense. it very eloquently. So yeah, it does make <laughs> sense. It just it just seems as though uh, I don't know. Like I, I'll I, I'll tell you the reason why it's going on though. Uh, maybe you shouldn't. No, I should. I should. Okay. It's it has nothing to do with future instances. I'll tell you that when we wanted to have this scene with Shay and Tyrion that happens later. Where Shay is really obnoxious. Is she not in that scene? Where she's super jealous that he like had sex with Roz and then yeah, he had sex with the I thought the whole like, scene was obnoxious, actually. That, yeah, that was it was probably, super obnoxious. That was one of the my least favorite scenes of the entire series of Game of Thrones. Oh yeah, ever. I agree completely. It was terrible. Yes. But it's better. This Shay is better than the Shay in the book. Because the Shay in the book goes to see Tyrion because she wants to go to a ball. And she's bored, and she she's not Sansa's handmaid at all in the Wait, book. When you and say so she wants to go to a ball. Oh, she you, wants to go to Joffrey's she, wedding. Oh, basically. she wants to go to like that kind of ball. Okay. Yeah. Oh, come on now. And um, like she she shows up. She's like, "Why can't I go in my velvets and my jewels? Why can't I?" Like she's worse in the book than she is in the show. And I think they're trying to give her some sort of depth in the show. Like she's looking after Sansa, and she's trying to. Ha- it seems like I she see. almost has a legitimate reason to go to Tyrion. So I feel like they're trying to give her depth. They just I don't know if it's the performance of the actress right. or what's going which on, is, but it's not working. Quite, which is quite weak, in my opinion. Yeah, it's not not working very yeah. well yeah. so but no that's that's good context it's good to know that they're trying to make this utterly unlikable character somewhat more likable yeah if she's she's yard smarter in in the show than she is in the book so you know they're trying i, I just think this storyline is uh i don't know i i just don't think it's that artfully done maybe in the end whatever transpires between Littlefinger and Sansa it's gonna it's all gonna lock into place I'm gonna say wow they really laid the seeds of that really like 
planted the seeds really well in episodes one and two, but I just I have a bad feeling about this plot line. That's all. Okay. And how it's going to be executed. Uh, so then uh, Sansa goes and speaks with Marjorie and Lady Oleana, uh, who is the Queen of Thorns. Cool name, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, this she is Marjorie's grandmother and kind of pr- presumably a powerful for a political force in in the Game of Thrones universe, I assume, right? Is that correct? Sort of. I mean, she's sort of a figurehead. She's not, you know, yes. Uh, the family has a ton of money. She's a figurehead, powerful person in the family. Do they so, have yeah. Lannister-esque levels of money? I think the Lannisters have more coin and the Tyrells have more like goods. I see. I crops see. and, you know, that sort of stuff. So... It's, I don't think they're quite as rich as the Lannisters, but – I mean no one is. But um, they're a powerful ally and they have tons of, of soldiers and that sort of thing. So Bannermen, I should say. Anyway, let's just talk about how Oleana is one of the best characters ever and she shows up and Diana Rigg knocked it out of the park and it was so enjoyable. And um, if you watch Downton Abbey, she was basically the Dowager Countess. Like she was so Maggie Smith. It was fantastic. Um and I love the scene. Did you like the scene? Uh, yeah, I thought it was great. I think the scene really hangs on on the Sansa character. I think like it it without her amazing performance, uh, it would not have worked because this scene is really the first time that uh, Sansa can be truly honest about all the horrors that have befallen her. Uh, right? Am I right about that? Like, has have there been other times when she's been able to open up about how, what a terrible person Joffrey is? Not that we've seen. We haven't seen her open up, no. Yes. He had that reputation, and they named him traitor and took his head. Joffrey. Joffrey did that. He promised he would be merciful, and he cut my father's head off. And he said that was mercy. And he took me up on the walls and made me look at it. Go on. I can't. I never meant... My father was a traitor. My brother as well. I have traitor's blood. Please don't make me say any more. She's terrified, Grandmother. Just look at her. Speak freely, child. We would never betray your confidence. I swear it. He's a monster. Oh. That's a pity. Uh, so Sophie Turner really did an amazing job here, and uh, the way that shot of her was framed was quite masterful because um, it was totally symmetrical. I don't know if you saw, uh, yeah. which is at- like atypical for uh, shooting a scene of dialogue. You-, you don't usually shoot it perfectly symmetrical, but uh, it kind of gave, and she was framed kind of by that doorway, and it kind of gave this sense that uh, she was being, I don't know, she was so small, kind of in the middle of this world, caught uh, in between these impulses that she had of of being honest and telling Marjorie the truth, and versus uh, you know uh, not endangering herself. Still not clear to me exactly kind of what what is the state of Sansa at this point, right? Like, is she? Uh, she's obviously still consuming resources of the kingdom, right? She she has traitor's blood. She's no longer betrothed to Joffrey. Uh, so they're just kind of letting her just chill out and, and kind of be she's one a, of the... 
Well, she's a prisoner, basically. I mean, she's a well-kept prisoner, but she's a prisoner of war because she's a major chess piece. Got it. Because um, against the Starks. So she's a well tra- a, tr- a well-treated prisoner. Right. And she doesn't – she knows that she could be, you know, beaten or abused or, or more things happen to her, like, at any time. So she doesn't want to jeopardize her state of being well-kept. But at the same time, these people seem so nice. This Terrell family seems so nice and they seem, like, so well-intentioned and they're like, we're going to – we have this cone of silence. We're not going to tell anyone. Uh, and I just felt this wave of relief when Sansa was finally able to say, oh, Joffrey did X, Y, Z, and, and was able to fully explain the, the depths of his horror. Uh, but it was kind of this uh, – I, I don't know how to put it. Uh, at the one hand, it was this relief, but it was there was still this kind of hopelessness attached to it because it wasn't like – the the uh, the queen of thorns made any promise about what would happen like oh uh wow thanks for letting us know we're definitely gonna do something about it you know it was just kind of like oh thanks for letting us know appreciate it we'll take that into account meanwhile sansa has just poured out her entire heart uh and is well i think there's i think there's what they offer is the relief of her finally being able to tell the truth and and be honest. She's been keeping up appearances for so long, and um, you know they all they offer her safety. They say we're just women here. We're not going to do anything. We're not going to betray you. And um, no, not that not that they're promising to do anything to help her, which is a little different than the book. But you know that they're not going to betray her. So right. you know, and that must be a, a comfort for this poor girl who's been trapped for so long. And she's so young. So I agree that Sophie Turner did an amazing job of just sort of letting it all go. Yeah. All right. So then uh, then at this point in the episode, we, we go back to Catelyn and, and Talisa. Uh, Catelyn is making uh, something, right? What do you, do you know what she's making here? Oh God, I'm sorry. I don't know the official name for it. She was she was doing it in season one right. for for Brandon, and it's she's making it looks the like Blair Witch uh, the, yeah the Blair Witch Dreamcatcher basically <laughs> yeah exactly uh, is what she's making. That's let's just call it that. Yeah, uh, and opens up to Talisa here. It's it's not 100 percent clear to me. I've said the phrase. It's not 100 percent clear to me throughout the course <laughs> of this episode. But uh, what what do you think Catelyn feels towards Talisa at this point? I think she doesn't dislike her as a person, but as they keep hammering home, she's just, you know, this is just the biggest mistake in the whole world. You get the scene right before with Lord Karstark and and Rob where he's like basically in marrying this woman, you've lost us the war. Because what they don't show um, is that he not only betrayed Walder Frey, Lord Frey, but he lost, like, in doing this, he then loses all of his Frey soldiers. So when Karstark says, we have half the men, like, he could be talking about, like, half our men have been killed, but I think what he means is half our men done rode away because you married this woman and you lost us half our army. Um, you know, which is the other side of the coin of the of the Marjorie Tyrrell-Joffrey marriage where they're gaining all the Tyrrell army forces in that marriage. You know what I mean? Like, right. Rob just made the biggest tactical error. And so I think Catelyn doesn't dislike Talisa as a person and she's inclined to be soft-hearted, you know, because she loves her son and she wants her son to be happy, but I mean, it's just it's doom basically. And um I, I don't know, that's how I read it. How do you read it? Yeah, that sounds that sounds right to me. That sounds right to me. Uh, okay. 
And Catelyn uh, has this scene, but at the same time, right? Like you're right, she doesn't dislike her as a person. You don't open up and spill your guts out to someone who you hate, right? Uh, right. Unless it's very special circumstances. So she she understands that Talisa is important in Rob's life, but she also doesn't fully accept her because of the horrible tactical decision this is. Uh, at the same time recognizes enough that she's a member of the family that she's willing to tell her this terrible secret that she's kept for the entire first two seasons uh, that we have not found out yet, which is that in her mind, she thought that she, she had the power to kill Jon Snow and then uh, save Jon Snow, but didn't live up to her part of the bargain. So I pray to all seven gods, let the boy live. Let him live. And I'll love him. I'll be a mother to him. I'll beg my husband to give him a true name. To call him Stark and be done with it. To make him one of us. And he lived. And he lived. And I couldn't keep my promise. And everything that's happened since then... This horror that's come to my family. It's all because I couldn't love a motherless child. Uh, and I thought she she did an amazing job delivering this speech here. Uh, it's uh, a really powerful scene. I, I mean, when she says uh, all these horrible things that have befallen us ha- have been because of me, uh, I don't know that. I fully uh, – it, it's kind of like there, there's this kind of uncertainty there, right? The uncertainty that one would have about anything uh, that's religion-related in the modern day, right? If someone said, oh, I made this promise to God that if he got me out of that situation, I would serve him forever. And then I did get out of that situation, but I didn't serve him, and now we're in this terrible mess. You know, It's kind of like, okay, I, right? Right. That may be true, but we have no way of knowing if that's the reason. Right? So there, while I did find the speech very moving, I, I also enjoyed the fact that there's this kind of uncertainty in her voice about did she really cause all this to happen? You know, there's this whole separate religion in Game of Thrones. Um, anyway, I'm rambling. What did you think of this scene? Um, it was okay. It was fine. It's not at all in the book. And so it's just this thing they made up, I think, to try to make Catelyn seem more approachable. Um, because she's, I mean, it, it is her fault. You know what I mean? It was sort of, the, you know, in capturing Tyrion, she kind of started the whole war, basically. Or one could say in pushing Bran out of the tower, they started the war. But in capturing Tyrion, in season one, she that was the first major tactical blunder, I think. Interesting, and, uh, because my, underst- my understanding of the scene was that what she was saying was that because she didn't keep her promise to the gods, that's why all this bad luck. No, 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 I agree. Uh, okay, of course, okay. um, I agree with you, but I'm just saying for her f- to have this character say it's all my fault, I think that's almost fan service because I think a lot of people are all, it's all Catelyn Stark's fault. So to have it come out of the character's mouth maybe makes us more, you know, kindly disposed towards her because she said that, you know, when we feel that way about her. I don't know. Interesting. I, I mean, I will say, yeah, I thought this was one of the most effective scenes in the whole show. Uh, I'm sorry, in, okay. this, in this episode. In, in this episode? Okay. Yeah. And I think I, I think there is a tendency to uh, – <laughs> I don't want to make any accusations here, Joanna, but uh, 
Do you think that maybe sometimes there's a tendency to devalue scenes if they uh, are not in the book? If I think they're not great and they're not from the book, yes. But like like last season we had stuff with like Tywin and Arya. I thought that all stuff was great. None of it was in the book and I thought it was masterful. So I think I'm more of a harsh judge of things that are not from the book because I really want to think about why do they include this. Right. You know, I'm kind of like, okay, you know, like if – if a song, if a if a scene from the book doesn't work, I'm like, okay, well, they didn't execute that as well as they could have. If they've added a scene, then I'm kind of like, okay, well, what purpose does this serve ultimately? And you know that they cut something else in order to put this in here, and you know, so I I don't think like I'm predisposed to dislike it. I'm just there's that extra layer of criticism that I have on top of it. Fair enough. Do you think those are two different? ways of thinking no i think i think i think that's a that's a good point i think and i think that's fine that's very fair um or i mean i guess it's inherently unfair but whatever (laughs) right i'm cool (laughs) cool with it i'm cool with it okay cool cool all right uh so anyway she opens up to lisa and they have this moment of bonding together and i think uh, you know to to let me recalibrate i guess i thought it was pretty good pretty good scene not not one of the best scenes of all of Game of Thrones, but certainly not one of the worst scenes of this episode, of which uh, there was one that... Uh, wait, actually, is that... I don't see it on this, uh, on this rundown here. Um, or do I, we, we already talked about the Tyrion and Chase scene enough, we think? I think so. It was terrible. We hated it. Yeah, that was just... That was, <laughs> was really, really terrible. Like, I, I found it totally... Not only totally insufferable, but just poorly written... Do you know what I mean? I just did yeah. not believe any moment that was going on. I agree. Uh, and it didn't seem to advance the plot at all. It's, it served almost no purpose in my, in my mind. So, all right. We I mean, little... I understand, like, you know, in my obnoxious way, I can say I understand why it was there, but I don't, I didn't like it. I thought it was poorly done. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on north of the wall. But actually, before we get to that, we're already uh, like 40 minutes into this episode. So why don't we take a minute to thank uh our sponsors for this episode joanna let's do it uh so the the cast of king's podcast is only here because uh those of you who are listeners decided it was worth uh it was worth contributing some funding to and we really appreciate all the people that donated any amount of money uh to a cast of kings but uh there were some people who claimed some sponsorship spots uh, and uh, we want to thank those people in particular. This week, uh, we want to thank Chris uh, Farrell from the Screeners Cast podcast. Uh, and John Robinson, do you know what the world could always use more of? What could the world always use more of, Dave? High-quality podcast, Joanna. High-quality podcast, indeed. High-quality podcasts. Um, and particularly, high-quality podcasts... Featuring four friends who have all had some career in video production at some point. That 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 is really there's a there's a need for expertise uh, as opposed to just people who have no idea what the hell they're talking about, like us, just rambling. Like about us, it. yeah, exactly. There's, we have no insider knowledge. Exactly right. Exactly right. Why come? To, why listen to our show at all when you could go to a place that where people actually know what they're talking about? And and listen there. So uh, you can find the Screeners Cast at, uh, at the, I should say the Screeners Podcast at ScreenersPodcast.com. You can also email them at ScreenersCast at gmail.com. 
And follow them on Twitter at ScreenersCast. Uh, and go ahead. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's Chad, Chris, Melody, and Josh. And they, between them, in their little fingers, probably have way more uh, insider knowledge. In than their me. little fingers. Yeah, you like it? It's a Game of Thrones Game reference. Game of Thrones reference. Dropping the Game of Thrones names down there. Uh, but Chad is a pro who spends pretty much his entire waking life immersed in some kind of video production. Chris is a sci-fi and action nerd from way back who might be Michael Bay's only serious fan. Not true, Chris. There's definitely at least one more fan on this podcast. Um, <laughs> Melody, a mom and a Trekkie, but we rarely hold that against her. I don't know why you'd hold that against her. Just putting that out there. And Josh, an armchair philosopher who occasionally leaves the house to see a movie, which he almost invariably hates, unless Wes Anderson made it. Um, that's kind of like me, except uh, substitute unless for especially if. Uh, so anyway, uh, Chad, Chris, Melody, and Josh uh, have a great di- time doing the Screeners podcast, which is releasing every other week. They're always looking for feedback from listeners, so check out their podcast on iTunes, uh, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, at ScreenersCast, on email at ScreenersCast at gmail.com, and on the web at www.ScreenersPodcast.com. That's www.ScreenersPodcast.com. Uh, there's also a bunch of people who donated uh, at least $10 each, John Robinson. At the so very least. The very least. They, they may have donated more than that, but we are going to thank them for donating at the very least $10. Uh, so, John Robinson, you want to start naming some of these awesome people? Yes. Um, I want to thank Max Rothschild, Brad Dancer, Derek Peterson, Ranjan Rajan, Lainey Bobaney, Sean Welsh, Sean Stringfield, and John Hewer. Thank you guys so much. We also got to thank Crystal Bailey, Chad Maya, Craig Smith, Kip Palalis, Mark Rossini, Kevin Perez, uh, Lord Trent of House Palmer, which is what the name he wrote down was, and uh, Patrick Stedham, as well as John Paul Lawrence. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks, John Paul. Hey, uh, John, I think you should read it Max Rambles. Max Rambles? Yeah, because on the right side, that's what they want their name to be pronounced as. Oh, okay. Sorry. Can Max you just re- read all your names again? Yeah. <clears throat> so hold on. Hold on. Let's well, just... I think it's I think it's Riccini. I don't think it's Rossini. <laughs> okay. We should have <laughs> we should have done our each other's names. I know. What what first of all it says how how is that pronunciation guide help me pronounce Riccini? It doesn't. It's terrible. But yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. Let's do this again. again. Let's do this again. Let me make a let me make a timestamp here. Okay. Live podcasting, everybody. Yeah. We also have to thank Joanna, all the people that donated ten dollars to our show. Uh, People that donated $10 won the privilege of having us thank them by name. So big thanks to all the following people, uh, including Crystal Bailey, Chad Maya, Craig Smith, Kip Palalis, Mark Rossini or Riccini. I'm not sure which one because the pronunciation guide he provided is no help. Kevin Perez, Lord Trent of House Palmer, Patrick Stedham, Jean-Paul Lawrence, and who else, Joanna Robinson? Who else should we thank today? Um, I'm going to go on record and say I think it's Riccini. Right. And I'm going to thank Mar- Max Rambles, Brad Dancer, Derek Peterson, Ranjan Rajan, 
Lainey Bobaney, Sean Welsh, Sean Stringfield, and John Hewer. Thanks, guys, so much. In, in, we really appreciate it. In what world is Max Rambles pronounced Max Rambles? That's what I want to know. Rambles. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do you want to do it again? No, it's okay. I'm just, I'm just messing with you now. We're going to leave this in. So, okay. What you guys haven't been hearing is the, the eight takes that we did of that one bit of reading the names. So, John Paul Lawrence is really hard to pronounce. I, I agree. I agree. Work on that, John Paul. All right. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's go north of the wall, Joanna Robinson. What happens north of the wall? We have a, another scene with Mance and John. Uh, and do you feel like okay? So, so I was really happy that they put this in because, like, one of your major issues last week was like I don't understand why Mance Raider was convinced so easily. And then right off the bat, he's like, "If you're playing as false, it won't be hard to kill you," which is what I was trying to tell you, which is that I didn't think Mance Raider was convinced. He was like, "All right, I'm going to keep you around. It's like keep your enemies closer." He's keeping him around, but he's not trusting him. Uh, I mean, let me just say that we got a lot of emails, a lot of comments about this, and uh, it's still pretty sharply divided, Joanna. I think a lot of people. Uh, agreed with me that the Jon Snow storyline and the setup for it was totally lame, and other people thought, oh, that was totally adequate in explaining. And of course, uh, Mance doesn't trust Jon. My beef is not the idea that Mance suddenly trusts Jon. The, uh, the whole suspicion that Mance has of Jon, like, that's totally understandable. I get that. That's conveyed well. It's okay. the whole setup to get to that point in the story makes no sense whatsoever oh john yes. john killed corn halfhand I, I love someone in the comments at slash home brought this up dude corn halfhand was basically restrained and surrounded by 50 wildlings there's no way he was going to survive that any, like anyone could have incidentally killed corn halfhand it's not a huge deal that john killed corn halfhand at least the way it's set up in in the in the show in my opinion so yeah, that's agree. a long they way of saying that. no joanna <laughs> Well, I thought your issue was with Mance trusting him. If your issue is with the way it was set up, I agree with you completely. No, yeah, my, my issue is with Mance finding this even somewhat plausible. That, that, that's not the. I don't think Mance trusting him is the issue. It's Mance finding this somewhat at all plausible that Jon Snow wants to join them. Okay. So. Well, what I'm saying is, I don't think he does find it totally plausible. No, I, I, I mean, <laughs> I think <laughs> he should find it implausible in ways that aren't what the show intends. Right? Okay. He find it implausible because it makes no sense on any level. Okay. Um, that being said, uh, we get a really good sense of how difficult Mance's job is. It's, it's hard out there for a ruler of the wildlings, man. <laughs> That's a catchy tune. We yeah. should, should write that. Definitely. Hustle and flow. So, um, <laughs> hustle and flow Westeros edition. So, we have uh, we just get a sense that yeah, there's all these different clans, and Mance is trying to to be in charge of them. We're also introduced to some some other magic, the ability to see through animals. Uh, kind of cool, kind of well done in this scene. What do you think? Oh, I loved it. We've already seen that with it's parallel to what Bran's doing. Like the wolf dreams that Bran has, as Jojen says in the episode, it starts with the dreams, and then you can do it later. We've heard that term warg before used for. Bran, and so we meet this character, Oregon, Oren, played by Mackenzie Crook, aka Gareth from the British Office. I really love that guy. So, um, and the white eyeballs, like super creepy and awesome. So yeah, and the way he well kind done. of transitions out of the white eyeballs to to regular eyeballs, I thought yeah. was really well done. Again, I don't, I don't have any beef with magic in the show in general. Like the, the rules of this are pretty well set up. They're not. They don't break the world, in my opinion. Uh, and so I, th- I thought that was a great scene. Yeah. Um, so then, uh, finally, we have a return to the Arya storyline. Let's take a pause here for a moment and just say that uh, it does feel to me as though they are purposely excluding some storylines from each episode to to concentrate on other storylines. Uh, again, I, I just had this feeling that 
and this may be totally wrong, but I feel like most of the episodes in season two felt the need to uh, address every single plot line. Uh, whereas it feels like they they are much less obligated to that this season. Do, do you feel that way, or am I am I just imagining it? I don't know. Yeah, I agree. And they, you know, last season the Danny plotline was so problematic. I think because they tried to beef it up to include her more, right? Than she would have been otherwise. And so, yeah, I agree with you that it's great that they can just feel the need to leave her alone, right? And you yeah. know, we won't forget who Danny is, and exactly. we'll come back right. to her. And so, no Danny this episode, which is too bad because the whole Unsullied situation was really interesting to me. Uh, but we finally find out what's happening with Arya. It's interesting, by the way, Arya and Bran look noticeably older than they did uh, you know, uh, last season, even though yes. theoretically only a few days have transpired since last season. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of amusing. Uh, but that's what happens when you hire children actors. So we finally get a, here, a, a continuation here of what's going on with them. They're on the run, and uh, they encounter uh, the Brotherhood Without Banners. Now... Until this point, I did not even know that the Brotherhood was an actual real thing, like, or I did not know it would play a huge part in the story. Um, right. So they encountered them, and uh, the head of the Brotherhood is played by Paul Kay, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, who I thought did a fantastic job in this episode. He just has this uh, great quality to him. He's very charismatic. Right from the start, you're like, who's this guy? Yeah, I, who is it? Like, I yeah. can totally understand why someone, why people would follow him into the middle of the woods with no banner that he's waving and just do what he says. Uh, so I, I think he's really, really charismatic, rough around the edges, uh, very likable, uh, but also kind of has a, a very subdued menace to him. Like, you get a sense that if you don't do what he says, he'll probably do something terrible to you. Uh, so I thought he captured. You know, the, the, whatever this character is, I don't know what he was like in the book, but uh, it felt really fully realized to me in the show. What are your thoughts? Yeah, he was great. And I really liked the um, the other brother that we saw, which was Angai the Archer. I love that whole bit where he fired the arrow in the air and he's like, by the time I'm done talking, this is going to hit you in the head, basically. And I thought that was really beautifully done. I also love the, that Thoreau censors singing The Reigns of Castamere. And it's sort of that whole world building where, you know, these they have a culture these songs that come up over and over again and you know these shared cultures so i thought that was a, a sweet little bit and uh, you know and then they have that scene in the inn um where he disarms aria really quickly oh the thing we should talk about though is when when they open up on aria it addresses the thing that you and a lot of other people got really pissed about last season which is why didn't aria use one of her wishes to kill tywin lannister the answer is because in the books he's not there, so that's the real answer. But Gendry is giving Arya all his crap. He's like, "You had three wishes, and you could have killed three people, and you could have ended the war if you killed Tywin Lannister, and you didn't." And Arya's like, "No, I didn't." You know, like I thought that was good fan service. Like you, I, like you talked about the yeah, nose getting cut off. Yeah, you know, except, except addressing a major, like just bringing up a major plot hole doesn't necessarily address it. You know, like pointing out that you did something stupid doesn't necessarily absolve you of it. Do you know what I'm saying? No, I'm not saying it absolves. I just think I feel like that's why that was there was to them fan service to be like, yeah, we know that that didn't make any sense. Basically, I'm not letting the showrunners off the hook. Okay, uh, for that. that's, fine. Kind of that's I'm, fine. Where I'm going. Um, anyway, the Brotherhood was was great. I thought they did a great job. Right, so. and and delivered a truly holy crap moment uh, in this. Like just an amazing moment because. You have this scene where they have this hooded guy come into this inn. The same inn, by the way, where I believe uh, Kat seized Tyrion, right? Uh, it's the same set. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so it, it doesn't matter if it was the, actually the same place. Right. Um, 
but uh, they bring in this guy. You don't know who it is. And when they unmask him, the way that scene is shot, right? And you just have yeah. this, holy crap, uh, this guy can give away Arya's true identity. Uh, and then I thought back to how the Hound wanted to run away with Sansa <laughs> last season. And I guess uh, she, she chose the slightly less sketchy of the two male people to run away with. Um, oh, sorry, what was that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I kind of felt bad for the Hound uh, that he's just on his own. Doing God knows yeah. what, trying to get away from King's Landing. Yeah, um, and all the fire, all the scary fire. Yeah. So uh, Arya yeah, so was yeah, so Arya was so close to getting out. Joanna, so, close. so close, so close. And now who knows what the Brotherhood's going to do to her? I don't know, but uh, yeah. it seems like she's... they framed that so well. Speaking of framing, the the last shot is like over the shoulder of Thoros and Sandor, and it's right. just like her face framed, and this like oh shit look on her face. So yeah, yeah. I thought that was well done. Um, so then I think the only other thing we need to talk about this episode is the the final scene with Marjorie and Joffrey. Right? Well, can I talk really quickly about Samwell Tarly? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I, oh, I kind okay. of blocked that out of my mind, too. Continue. <laughs> I think uh, we had a couple people write in or, or tweet at me or something that they're like, please give Sam a ton of crap for being a whiny crybaby. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, look, I jo- Joanna Robinson, I am not an objectivist. By, by nature, but uh, I do think that here's a guy who apparently didn't send the ravens and who, you know, is now... What was he supposed to send the ravens? Okay, 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 but, but has, has proven himself to be generally useless and now is becoming... Like, when you watch that scene, you either identify with Samwell or the guy who's complaining about Samwell, right? <laughs> and I definitely identify with the guy who's complaining about Samwell way more. Right. Well, I I identified with Sir Jorah, or Sir yeah, Lord Mormont. Sorry, not Sir Jorah, Lord yeah. Mormont. Where like I, he's a good leader. I mean, he yells at Sam, but he's not like you're a stupid piece of shit. Sit down in the snow and die. But he's like, get your shit together, Sam. We're marching. I just watched. This is a slight tangent, but it it reminded me. I just watched The Gray this weekend for the first time. I hadn't seen it. Uh, Devendra actually told me to watch it. It was really, really good. And uh, it reminded me a lot of this where like you're, you're, you're at the end of your rope. And yeah, Sam's and the end of Sam's rope might be sooner than most other people's. And I'm not saying I completely identify with Sam. I'm just saying it's like. So, it's so soon that you can't tell <laughs> the beginning of the rope from the end of the rope. I guess. <laughs> That's how soon it is. But, uh, you know, I, anyway. All right, you 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 think Sam should have sat down in the snow and died right then and there? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, like it's it's bad enough that he's useless. At, at least, at least have the self awareness, man. At least kind of think to yourself, okay, I'm useless. That's why you left me behind. But I'm gonna make the most of this. But he's actively doing things that could endanger them even more this episode by kind of sitting down in the snow and crying. And that's just like, haven't you already done enough damage, Sam? Haven't you already done enough damage? All right. So <laughs> we can talk about we can talk about Marjorie now. <laughs> I I just yeah what a, what a useless character I I don't know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. Answer the question, Joanna. Do, who do you identify more with, Samuel? Or I don't or... identify with that psychopath who's like sit down in the snow and die right now. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's where you and I differ, obviously. Okay. That's where you and I differ. Hey, look, look, that's one way to view it, Joanna. Another way to view it is. He's looking out for the, uh, you, you know, the, the good of the unit. 
You know, he's looking out for his his fellow uh, Night's Watchmen. And if Samuel is just kind of sobbing into a corner uh, and, and, you know, impeding their their advancement, it's going to be bad for all of them. So... Sure. Think of the many, not of the one. That's right. Like, that's, that's that's my point. That's my point. Also, he's probably just pissed at Sam. <laughs> Both of those things. Okay. So uh, then we have this final scene with Marjorie and Joffrey. And let me just say, Joanna, it is in general difficult when uh, a person is acting to tell whether or not they have a raging erection. Uh, but <laughs> this is a scene where it was very clear that one of the characters definitely did have one of those. Yeah, Marjorie's gown did not hide her erection. Is what that's you're right? Saying. No, seriously yeah. though, uh, we we have gotten hints that Joffrey is sexually aroused by violence before, uh, but this really brought that to light. And I thought he's he's such a good actor because he conveys this absolutely sickening character so well. It, it in my opinion, it is not over the top. Do you know what I mean? No. He is not like. Ooh, I have such a raging whatever right now. You know, he's just basically like it's very subtle the way he says things and his kind of the way his like smile is is kind of really uh, there's a really whew, really chilling menace and and disturbing menace to him. Uh, but I, I was a, a little unclear as to what was going on at the beginning of the scene. She she uh, she comes in. And Joffrey is holding his crossbow, which we know he only does when he's kind of pissed and wants to show his his power. Uh, what 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 are his feelings towards Marjorie at that point? Because the feeling I was left with at the opening scene with Cersei and Joffrey is that uh, Joffrey uh, kind of like Marjorie. So that when she comes in and he kind of is making all these accusations about how she's betting a traitor and stuff like that, uh, it did kind of confuse me. What what am I missing? Am I missing something? Well, I just think Cersei had sown some seeds, you gotcha. know, that he likes her, but Cersei had dropped some because that's exactly what Cersei had said earlier. And so he was just sort of like thinking about it and stewing on it. And so he said these things and then Marjorie deflected it expertly. Right. By uh, by kind of by outing Renly and talking about <laughs> anal sex. <laughs> Which she does. She's like, he got really drunk and he wanted to have sex with me in a way that would never produce a baby. And I was like, all right, all right, Marjorie. Way to stay a lady and talk about anal sex at the same time. So. Yeah, well, well played. Well played. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, she and-, play- and speaking of playing, like, she plays him so well. She's armed with this knowledge that she got from Sansa that he's this little fucking sicko psychopath. And she just plays him perfectly. Well, there's I also thought it was one, amazing. one of the most subtle things about this episode, I thought, was when he says, I've been thinking of outlawing such degenerate behavior. And she says, as is your right. But you can tell she's in being insincere about it. Do you know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah, because her bro is gay. Right. She's <laughs> all for gay marriage, man. Right, right. And, yeah. and I just thought that was just a great moment that, that, that she... She, um, you know, comparing how Sansa lies to comparing how she lies is oh, yeah. really great comparison because she's expert at it and Sansa really isn't very good at it quite yet, you know? Uh, and so just, just an amazing contrast between the two of them. Yeah, so. and I love that line she has where she says, the subtleties of politics are often lost on me. And I was like, nothing's lost on you, Marjorie. Right. She's got the whole game sewn up, so she's great. I am very curious what her 
her kind of plan was like well I, i'm i'm also curious what her game was with saying like uh, let me try using this weapon is she uh trying to sort of verify sansa's claims do you think at this point well, not only verify, but also just sort of play, you know, it's like if you find find out that your partner has a kink of some sort and you want to please them in that way, you're like, well, let me play into that kink. You know, and that's what she's doing. Basically, this is this is what excites him. And she's like, uh, would that excite you to watch me do this? And he's like, yeah, I would. So I see she's good at what she does is what she, I'm saying. She is a generous lover, I think, is really <laughs> what. In modern terms, that's what we call her. I mean, she for Renly, she was as well. She's like, shall I call my brother in here? Would that help you? So uh, anyway, that, that takes us to the end of this week's episode. I think that's all the storylines. Uh, so yeah, uh, noticeably missing, as we've already pointed out. No Daenerys and no Davos, no Melisandre, no Stannis this episode. Uh, anything else that we missed this episode, Jenna? Oh, I'm sure. I hope people will tell us if we did. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of any other major plot lines, but I, I have a feeling I'm... I'm forgetting one or two. But uh, yeah, again, loving this new approach of feeling free to leaving out some plot lines. I think that is the best approach. I think they learned their lesson, uh, especially because they're introducing new characters left and right, right? Like you have to be uh, very careful how many characters you introduce and how much time you spend on them or else the audience will stop caring. Right. Um, so I think they've done a good job here. What did you think of this episode overall? You liked it? I loved it. But I, I can see how people would get, you know, who don't know what's coming or whatever. Like, I hate to sound, I like don't want to sound smug or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that pretty for smug. me, pretty smug. well, that's just my voice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for me, like I said, I got, I was so pleased with all of the new characters we met and the excellent job they did with the casting and the direction that, you know, I really love this episode for that. And the conclusion is very exciting with Jamie and Brienne and what's going to happen. Good cliffhanger. So, yeah, uh, I thought it was all right. Certainly not bad. Um, some really great moments. Uh, the moment when the hound is unmasked, um, there is uh, just some some really great kind of oh my gosh moments that you would expect from Game of Thrones, and and this episode does deliver. Uh, some weak stuff, right? The the Shay plotline continues to disappoint. Uh, and overall, just not that much really happens this episode. So uh, it was it was all right. Not not my least favorite episode, but certainly not my favorite. I have a feeling uh, it's just setting up the best that is yet to come. So all right, that is. I our like discu- your optimism, Dave Chen. Yeah, there you go. Uh, that is our discussion of Dark Wings and Dark Words, the ses- second uh, episode of this season of Game of Thrones. Let's get the emails, Jonah Robinson. Emails. Let's do it. Uh, so, I uh, got a lot of emails this week. Uh, you can always email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. Peter from Air Massachusetts wrote in, uh, in regards to magic, while I don't think the rules need to be explicitly outlined, I do think the show needs to do a better job showing the cost slash repercussions of magic. In the books, Mar- Martin's magic system is more poetic than it is rules-based, but he makes it clear this kind of magic doesn't come easily. Melisandre is one of the most powerful magic users in the series, but that doesn't mean she can just conjure smoke babies whenever she pleases. And don't get me started on Pyat Pri as multiple man or little girls who can randomly teleport as if a poisonous scorpion isn't scary enough. There's, reason, there's a reason such nonsense wasn't in the books. Once you establish that teleportation is possible, doesn't that change everything? 
I'd also like to agree that Dave, uh, with Dave that Jon Snow's reasons for joining the Wildlings weren't properly set up. A single conversation with Corrin Halfhand toward the end of Season 2 could have fixed this in the book. Corrin stresses the need for Jon to infiltrate the Wildlings and encourages him to do what is necessary when the time comes in order to gain their trust. It seems to me this could have easily been addressed, but I suppose they would have had to lose another scene, like Joffrey beating whores with a scepter. I think we can all agree that scene was pretty great and not the least bit gratuitous. <laughs> Um, so I just really enjoyed this email. Uh, again, we've pointed out a lot of people disagreed with me and a lot of people agreed with me. This is one of the emails that agreed with me. Uh, but Joanna, I did not know that the teleportation was not in the books. Can you vouch for this? I can vouch for that. So that makes me even more I feel, angry. I feel like I talked about that last season, but I could be I th- wrong. I think you're right about that. But yeah, that, that's, uh, that makes the me even more. The, ma- the quote-unquote magic scorpion, the manticore, is in the book. So I don't know. Right. But the teleportation is not, so... Right, and, and, and Peter makes a good point here, which is that once you establish teleportation possible, doesn't that change everything? Which is to say, there's no reason Pi should ever be defeated by anything. If you, the teleportation is such an amazing power uh, that the ability to overcome that with fire, right? It just seems really... Not pretty- just any fire, dragon fire. Maybe it just, maybe it just elevates the uh, impressiveness of the dragon fire. Uh, okay. Not okay. even teleportation can escape dragon fire. Okay, 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 maybe. Maybe you're right about that. <laughs> or maybe I'm wrong. So yeah. One of those two things. Very likely, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> okay, John from Fairbanks, Alaska writes in, I'm writing to join into the discussion about the use of magic and its limits. I think there is a fundamental flaw in the ways most people are viewing what is called magic. I believe what we are dealing with instead is religion. Melisandre repeatedly says that she cannot simply perform magic at will. She's acting as a conduit for her god. She is from a monotheistic religion coming into a land of polytheism and trying to show her god as a dominant force. It's just like when Moses went into Egypt and showed the Egyptians the power of his god. Moses never claimed to be performing magic even though his staff became a snake. He was simply the conduit for his god. At the heart of this was a struggle between religions. Even the proximity issue that comes up in the book you guys spoke about wasn't actually a proximity issue. In the book, Renly is in a castle that is said to be protected by old gods, and Davos has to sneak her inside the walls of the castle so that the barrier won't keep her smoke baby out. I think the stakes are that because Melisandre isn't really in control of the magic is what keeps her in check, her god chooses how to use the power. I could be completely wrong. It's just how I've always read the books. Thank you for your time. What do you think of John's email, Joanna? I really liked that. I think we ha- – just – I'm not saying John's 1,000% correct, um, but I am saying that I don't think we've really brought the discussion of religion into it as much as we should have in terms of the monotheism and the polytheism of Davos versus Melisandre, how important that is and how in the in the book that they're currently covering the show, like he – it starts with this whole part on the island where Davos – Davos is – devotion to Stannis is also tied into his religion and how frustrated he is that this woman has come in, this usurper has come in and burned all his, his of his gods and he believes that she has used her god's magic to entrap like his king. It's a it's a religious struggle and I, I don't think that I've brought that up enough. So I'm glad that John brought it up. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and it's interesting. So I think the Moses comparison is really great. In particular, that story, right? That that yeah. uh, the Egyptians were polytheistic and, and Moses was monotheistic and kind of uh, and showing what uh, his god could do. Um, the, the bit about Davos in the book, I'm sorry, the bit about uh, the smoke baby in the book is interesting that they had to go inside the castle walls because that's how they could... Uh, invalidate the old god's power 
in this show, really, we've only seen uh, Melisandre's god have like demonstrate definitively that that he has powers, right? Because uh, I don't think we've seen any old gods do any magic yet in the show, or any old gods definitively show something. Am I right about this? I don't know. They saved apparently they saved Jon Snow from death. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. And then you know, I, I, I'm not clear how. Uh, the brand magic stuff factors into the old gods, like whether that's going to be connected at all. But yeah, th- what's interesting is that thus far, the only gods we've di- like seen without question actually have an effect are Melisandre's uh, god, or is Melisandre's god. And so I think that's interesting that in the book, apparently, it's a little, it sounds like it's a little bit more balanced between, like the old gods are shown to actually have demonstrable power. Uh, I wouldn't say that. What I would say is that Melis, whether or not you... I would say the red gods and the red god and like what Melisandre, that is definitely like a, a showier sort of power. I don't know. Like she doesn't get poisoned. I mean, I don't know. But what I what I liked was the idea that she's not ultimately in control, that she's just a conduit. Right. You know what I mean? And so it's like she can't just do whatever Stannis wants because she's acting as a messenger. Um, right. I don't know. Right, and, and, and I mean that also kind of may explain um, any that, that helps to explain any inconsistencies we might right. see towards how her magic is applied. So, uh, but I think the clash of religions and and you know, Mass Raider addresses it in this episode as well when he talks about all the different fates that he's united under under his rule up north. You know what I mean? All these different religions up there um, <clears throat> that. As as it would make sense, anytime you read a history of a war, you know now wars are fought for oil and and land and that sort of stuff. But historically, religion played such a bigger part. I mean, obviously there are still religious wars, but like historically, religion played such a huge part in in warfare that I think it's we shouldn't discount it or yeah, we should not, not even about not it. even historically necessarily. No, I know. I mean, I, I of course yes. Now that there there are still religious wars, but I think uh, you know we also. Uh, see a lot more of the other I don't know. Anyway, I'm rambling, so I'll stop. But Lauren from Shelby uh Townhip, Michigan brought up an interesting point. Uh she wrote in that she has not read the books and the first thing that uh, that occurred to me when Barristan Selmy showed up was does he know Jorah was an informant? The whole Jorah betraying Danny thing was brought up pretty conspicuously last season, and if he's fully committed to Danny now, wouldn't that make him want to rat out Jorah for being a lying liar who lies? Uh, interesting point, Lauren. We'll see if that pans out. Obviously, Joanna cannot possibly comment on that. Right, Joanna? Cricket sounds over here. Uh, okay, cool. And I think... That is about it in terms of emails. A lot of great comments at SlashFilm.com. A lot of debating over whether uh, I'm an idiot or not, which is par for the course, I think. Uh, whether or not I like Lost or not, that yeah, seems to be that's important. Right. Very passionate uh, thoughts about Lost. Um, so I think that's, that's about is there Are there any other emails that you wanted to cover, Joanna? Not this week, but I thank you guys so much. There were a ton of great emails, so keep them rolling. I think... This is the best, you know, project that I've been a part of in terms of the caliber of emails that we get. So yeah. thank you guys. Pretty pretty amazing. And of course, I know a lot of people will have comments and corrections on what we've talked about this episode. So feel free to keep them coming to a cast. Of, uh, I'm sorry, a cast of kings at gmail dot com. That's a cast of kings at gmail dot com. 
So uh, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of A Cast of Kings. Jonah Robinson, you want to tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet this week? Every day on Padiba.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at QuitYourJRob. You can find me at Twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y, and DaveChen.net. And find more of our episodes at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. Thank you guys for listening to A Cast of Kings, which is made possible by SlashFilm.com. We'll see you next week. <laughs>